continue our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. We're in the 12th chapter, verse 18. So if you have a Bible, please turn it to Mark 12, verse 18. And uh, we're in the second episode of this sort of uh, triple dialogue that Jesus has. Last week, we looked at uh, his dialogue with the Pharisees and the Herodians, and the question was centered around Roman taxation. Today, we look at Jesus and his second dialogue. Uh, If you remember, these questions were designed to trap Jesus in some way. These people are from the Sanhedrin. They're looking to have Jesus destroyed and killed. And so they're trying to trick him by asking these questions. And uh, Jesus responds to them in the most wise of ways. So we're going to learn from this once again as the Sadducees come to Jesus and they question him. So let's read Mark 12, verse 18. I'll read to verse 27. And you can follow in your Bibles as I read from mine. This is the word of God. Mark 12, 18. Some Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second one married her and died, leaving behind no children, and the third likewise. And so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. Now in the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken? That you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Amen, the word of God. Our passage today depicts the second question presented to Jesus By the Sadducees. Now, Mark already gives us in comments, or in brackets, sorry, a comment on the fact that they don't believe in the resurrection. So we're going to break down a little bit about uh, what what the Sadducees were and who they were, what they believed in, and that'll give us a preface and a general understanding of why this question is being brought to Jesus and uh, what we're supposed to uh, learn from Jesus' response. Because it's a very, I mean, typical Jesus, very odd response, but it's a good response. So Today's sermon is entitled, God of the Living. Let me pray for us and we'll start. Gracious God, we come to your word, the holy, inerrant, infallible word that you have left us with and preserved through thousands of years. We thank you for Mark's penmanship, the Holy Spirit's inspiration over these writings, that God, the truth of these words and the teachings of Christ would be made known to us in the most powerful of ways. Convict our hearts of the truth contained within. Bless us with your word and its strength. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Again, our sermon is entitled, God, God of the Living. After Jesus' response to the Pharisees and the Herodians in the, previous tra- in the previous section regarding the Roman taxation, Jesus is approached by a second group today, the Sadducees. Now, the difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees are not so well known. So I'm going to uh, underline a couple things, but they are wide and they are many. So we'll cover some big categories of differences to help frame in your mind a general understanding of who this group was. Because here's the important thing to note, again, is this, that the group 
had major differences from the Pharisees. They usually argued, they usually debated, and this is what distinguished them from one another. And yet here we find them in unity once again. The Pharisees were a group comp- comprised of men from all walks of life. Uh, the Pharisee in like sort of a modern sense is like that of a pastor, of a rabbi, of a priest, right? Your local uh, teacher of theology and of biblical truth, right? That was sort of the function of the Pharisee, if you will. And this group contained within it and was comprised of men from all walks of life, all over the socioeconomic ladder. They included both the wealthy and the poor. They included all sorts of people. Whereas the Sadducees were an aristocratic group that came from only wealthy homes, rich families. They held the highest positions of power in the Sanhedrin, such as the chief priest was always a Sadducee, the high priest was always a Sadducee, and they held the most seats. There were about 70 seats in the Sanhedrin, and they held and occupied most of the seats of the Sanhedrin. Their wealth, their power, their authority, these things were very common to these men. They were also far more literal in their biblical reading. They took the Bible very literally, and that may not seem like a bad thing to you, but you're going to quickly see why it could be a bad thing if you take literal uh, minus the context, right? We, we are literal Bible believers as well here at this church. We believe the literal word of God and its truth. However, we also read it within its context and genre, right? Um, so there's obviously nuance to that. There might be some points of disagreement on minor doctrines, but here the, the Pharisees and Sadducees divide greatly on this particular issue of how they read the scriptures. In fact, the Sadducees did not consider any writing outside of the Torah. That would be the first five books of your Old Testament. So that's the books of Moses, right? So that's you know Genesis to Deuteronomy. They only read those five books. They only considered the Torah to be valid. So they only read those books. The Pharisees, however, held, of course, um, the previously mentioned, right, in previous altercations with Jesus and conversations with them, I mentioned things like the traditions of men that Jesus opposed, right? Uh, so on one end, you have the Sadducees who are too literal. They're almost ultra-radical conservatives. On the other end, you have the Pharisees who are mixing in the traditions of men. They're mixing in what's called the rabbinic oral tradition. And so it's kind of infiltrated. In fact, they put it, the Pharisees would put the oral tradition and the traditions of men on equal footing, on the same esteem as scripture itself, right? So, you know, for the modern Christian, it would be as if I would take like a Bible commentary and put it on equal footing, right? Or the Westminster Confession of Faith is a good example, right? That's a document we reread and we benefit from. But for me to say to you, well, the Westminster Confession of Faith is same equal authority and footing as scripture, I mean, you have no reason to attend this church. You would immediately leave, I hope, right? Uh, because that's just wrong. You just don't do that. You, we understand the Westminster is a document that's created by men, good in its function, purpose, and its content, but not perfect. It is by no means inspired in the sense that the scriptures are inspired. And so we don't look, uh, we don't add anything on to God's word uh, in terms of its equality and authority. Does that make sense? Even my preaching, you shouldn't consider as authoritative as the word of God is. Right? So the tradition of men and anything that men do uh, should not be considered on equal footing with the word of God. The word of God stands alone. It's God's word after all. 
But here the Pharisees would do that. And on the other end, the ultra-conservative Sadducees would just reject anything uh, that goes beyond Genesis to Deuteronomy. These things would have been rejected. And so this is where the disagreement lied between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And of course, this leads to a lot of doctrinal differences as well. You can imagine that these groups butted heads over doctrines and beliefs, considering how vast the 39 books of the Old Testament is compared to just the first five books. The Sadducees rejected things like angels and demons. They upheld human free will, so they were Arminian over God's sovereignty. And they did not believe in an afterlife. They literally thought, uh, like a modernist or a humanist today, or an atheist for that matter, that life just ceases. There is no afterlife. There is no heaven. There is a shawl, but that's just a temporary place. And uh, one doctrine that stood sort of at the crux of the dialogue and debate between the Pharisees and the Sadducees that confused many Jews was this debate over the doctrine of the bodily resurrection of God's people, of all people. So as Christians, we believe, of course, when we look at the book of Revelation, when we look at the teachings of Jesus uh, throughout his ministry, we see that he promises us and foreshadows to us um, the coming of the, uh, the second coming of Christ, right? The second advent. And when Christ comes and judgment is laid, uh, we believe um, on that day that people will rise from graves, that we will literally all rise bodily and be judged by God, by Jesus, right? This is called the bodily resurrection, the doctrine of resurrection. The Sadducees vehemently denied that this would ever occur. Well, they didn't even believe in afterlife, so there would no, be no purpose in doing so or having this event even occur. Now, some have asked, um, well, if the Sadducees are Jews and they don't even believe in afterlife, what's the point of living a good moral life at all? Well, I mean, maybe that tells you why they weren't living good immoral lives. Um, but beyond that, um, it's a question mark. Uh, the Sadducees died off um, pretty much early on in church history, and we've never heard from them since. So we don't have much documentation in regards to uh, why they were practicing Jews, right, or why they believed in God altogether. It's an interesting thing when you do a sort of in-depth study on these people. This was something, this resurrection, the doctrine of the resurrection, was something that the Pharisees taught because they saw it in Scripture. Where did they see it? In the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19. Various Psalms, including Psalm 71, verse 20. Let me read it for you. You who have shown me many troubles, you referring to God, and distress will revive me again and will bring me up again from the depths of the earth. That's Psalm 71, 20. But what is so apparent and obvious in the Old Testament was not so much the case or apparent for the Sadducees in just the Torah, just the first five books. And so they rejected this idea of a future bodily resurrection of all people, and they bring this very question up to Jesus today as they come to him. Now, it should be noted to you that these men, being of such high class and wealth, they rarely found their way speaking to Galileans, especially someone like Jesus from Nazareth. So this was a sort of rare occurrence, if you will. Today's episode marks an important shift in the Sanhedrin's stance and position on Jesus. He was a th big enough threat that they took their time to actually go and speak to him. That should say something about Jesus and what his ministry was conjuring up in this particular, uh, within the Jewish Sanhedrin. Giving you a lot of context and historical understanding here, and I think it's important for you to understand the text. I mentioned last week that Jesus ironically gave cause for unity among those that would otherwise have no reason to do so. Now, with a base understanding of the Sadducees, let us examine their question to Jesus 
and more importantly for our sake, what Jesus' response is. So you're going to want to have your Bibles open to the text and follow with me, Mark 12, 18, and just we'll work our way through. I have two points to today's sermon. The first point is the afterlife is unlike this life. The afterlife is unlike this. And then the second point is titled God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is exactly what God declares about himself at the burning bush. Let's look at the first point. So in the very first verses, the Sadducees come, Mark tells us they don't believe in the resurrection, and they question him. Teacher, okay? That's pretty much how everyone addresses him, even these Jewish men, right? Uh, and they quote Moses. They quote this ancient Levitical law, uh, and, and some of you might have seen variations of it, right? Uh, we saw it with Tamar and Ruth, who kind of, in some ways, manipulate this law to, get, uh, to benefit themselves. Uh, but there were, of course, in this story, seven brothers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You read the story, you understand the question, right? The question is posed that if a man dies and leaves behind his wife and is childless, um, and then all his brothers, he has six brothers, I suppose, or seven brothers, all taking turns marrying her after, after the previous one's death. Uh, the Old Testament teaches, according to Moses, that leveret marriage required that these brothers to marry and take care of their deceased brother's widow. So the next oldest brother would take care of of the widow, right? And they were to try and conceive and have child. Uh, the idea was to discourage, so in context within the time of Israel's period, in the Old Testament, the idea was to discourage intermarriage with Gentiles. There was such a fervor to have lineage and family continue on that people would go f above and beyond to try and have children, right? Um, so a classic example of this is Abraham. Remember Abraham is like promised by God, in his old age, you will have a child. Abraham, of course, loses faith, and uh, he sleeps with his maid, uh, his wife's maidservant, right, uh, Hagar. He sleeps with her, has a child, Ishmael. Ishmael is technically the first son of Abraham, but he's not the promised son, right, in Isaac. And we see the distinction made in Galatians when Paul speaks of promise and non-promise. Um, and that's, that's something. That was Abraham taking matters into his own hands, so to speak, and saying, I understand your promise, I understand what you're saying, but I'm just gonna go do it myself, right? And he does so, and he sleeps with a Gentile. He sleeps with someone who is considered unclean by Old Testament law, and has a child out of wedlock, has a child who is technically, yes, his child, and God is so faithful enough to not smite him, and in fact, he blesses Ishmael. He says, you know what? You're born of Abraham, you have Abrahamic blood, I made a covenant with that guy, you're born out of wedlock, I'm still going to bless you. You're not going to be like the Isaac. You're not going to be the entire like patriarch of uh, the Jewish people, the covenant people of God, but I'm still going to bless you, right? And so he preserves Ishmael in that way. There's an amazing story there. That's a sermon for another day. But that's sort of an example of what Jews would have done. And so to discourage that, this law is given uh, to, to discourage intermarriage between Jews and Gentiles. It was also put in place to preserve family lineage, right? God wanted the Israelites to be fruitful, to multiply, and it was designed to secure inheritance. It was made so that uh, inheritance wouldn't leak out to uh, people who shouldn't be receiving it. So usually inheritance would pass down through the sons, and so that was sort of the means that they would do so. So this was sort of uh, designed to govern and restrict temptation uh, that the Jewish people would have had. The question by the Sadducees is designed to trap Jesus today. 
uh, with what they perceived to be very simple logic. The Sadducees were known for their rationale and their logical thinking. They did not believe, as I mentioned before, an afterlife. They don't believe that there is life after, nor resurrection to come. So assuming those things true, for the sake of their question, the Sadducees ask, Jesus, what would become of this woman in the afterlife when she's resurrected, when all of them are resurrected? Which one of them would be her husband? She married them all. Now, why would that be problematic? Well, that would be adultery. That would be polygamy, wouldn't it? The question is a trap because the Old Testament strictly forbids polygamy. Now, you're going to go to the Old Testament and say, Max, you can't tell me the Old Testament prohibits polygamy. Everyone has multiple wives in the Old Testament. Friends, the Old Testament is a mirror of our sin. The Old Testament is designed to show you what not to do because all these fools did it, right? Just because you see it in the Old Testament doesn't mean that it's a model for your life. Certainly, you are not to replicate David in his pursuit of Bathsheba by killing her husband and then essentially raping her, right? That is not something to, to be following. There are elements of David that we should be uh, looking at as a model, but he himself is not our ultimate model. That is Christ alone. So this is an important thing to remember. Yes, the Old Testament, friends, honestly speaking, when you read it, a lot of people are polygamists. They have a lot of wives. It's forbidden by Old Testament law. It was so clever in their minds, in the minds of these Sadducees, because an afterlife was supposedly glorious, according to the Pharisees and other Jews, better than life on earth in a fallen world. The Pharisees believed in heaven, whereas the Sadducees saw life simply ends, right? And if there was an afterlife, it's just a glorified version of the same realities of the earthly life we live in now. If heaven was supposedly the better life, how could that be the case with such a problematic issue like this? Something that could come up in such a simple marital complication. They thought they had Jesus trapped in everyone else. They thought they were so logical and rational. Explain this, technical, uh, this technicality or deny both resurrection and the afterlife and come to the truth is the nature of their question to Jesus today. Jesus, of course, appeals to none of these things. He just rebukes them. He does neither of these things. Rather, uh, he, he neither explains it rationally or logically or technically, nor does he succumb to the rejection of that which is true. Instead, his immediate response is to rebuke them. And the rebuke is not just anger or like expressing you are wrong, right? But it's rather a correction as well. It's rebuke with correction. And what does he rebuke them on? Well, there are two areas of supposed strength, the Sadducees. He attacks them on those two strong points. Here's Jonathan, uh, not Jonathan Edwards, James Edwards in his commentary on Mark. He writes, they are vulnerable, the Sadducees, not at weak points, but at their strong points. Of course, these are supposed strong points. They think they're strong in these areas, and Jesus reveals, in fact, they are most weak. Jesus rebukes them on not knowing what? The scriptures or the power of God. The scriptures or the power of God. The scriptures were their supposed bread and butter. The power of God, the Sadducees would have felt, is exactly what gave them power and authority on this earth over other men. Jesus' claim is that they know neither of these things. They, they, they don't know these things. This would be like meeting Elon Musk and telling him he knows nothing about business and technology. If you want affirmation of Jesus' approval of Genesis to Malachi, well, here it is. 
he is advocating that the breadth of the 39 books of the Old Testament in your Bible right now ought to be read in its full so you would understand the things of God and the power of God. For these Sadducees did not do so. Hence, they knew not what? The total breadth and depth of God's word. They knew not also his power, for they limited themselves to just those certain books, rejecting that which was from God, and hence rejecting his power to what? Resurrect the dead. And that's just another way of saying what? Give life to the lifeless. You don't read Ezekiel taking dry, seeing a vision of dry bones, flesh reattaching, coming back to life. You don't read Daniel and his three friends being thrust into a fiery furnace to burn in that fire and coming out unscathed. You don't read about these things because you limited yourself to Genesis to Deuteronomy. Now, a lot of you have started a Bible reading plan, and maybe some of you want to be Sadducees today because your Bible reading plan would be a lot easier if it was just Genesis to Deuteronomy. But here's the reality. Your Bible plan usually ends at Leviticus. So even as a Sadducee, you would fail <laughs> to read your Bibles, right? It would be hard. But Jesus is saying and advocating for the totality of the Old Testament. Read it all. Know the scriptures. Know his power. Jesus corrects their first theological error. This is where your interest probably lies. So look at verse, uh, where is he? Verse 24, right? He rebukes them, and then in verse 25, he gives a response. So here's, their, here's his first theological correction, the first correction of their error. The afterlife is unlike, Jesus says, anything else. It's nothing like the earthly life. New heavens and new earth is not language that means an earth that is better or superior uh, or a version that is upgraded from what we live, here, live on here today. This is a fallen world in reality in which all things will be made new. Redemption is complete reversal. Marriage was seen by many Jews at the time as a heavenly preview, something that pointed to and gave a glimpse of heaven's reality, but experienced now. This is not completely untrue, for we see the beautiful marriage between Christ and his church at the end of the Bible, but it's not earthly marital relationship. It completely depends on what you mean by that statement, but to think that earthly marriages would be maintained in the resurrected life in heaven's glory is simply not correct biblically. Jesus introduces brand new language to the Jewish crowd to understand what the afterlife and life after resurrection entailed. What does he say? What does he compare it to? He says, this life after, post-resurrection, with God, will make you like angels in heaven. Angels in heaven. Now, why is that language important and, and very sort of cheeky from Jesus? Angels, as I mentioned earlier, are the very thing the Sadducees denied even existed. Jesus affirms their existence for them. Not only that, he says that our relationship status in heaven will be like that of the angels. What does that mean? Not married. Angels are not married. Rather, in harmonious relationship with God and one another as a community of God. This is good news to all of us who would believe. Why? Because although our bodies will be redeemed, glorified, and renewed in that new world, sorry, in the afterlife, and we'll be intact in that way, and we'll have sort of a sense of what we look like now, right? We will be nothing like who we are today. 
Because a glorified version of you and the fallen version of you may be the same body, sort of visually, optically, but it is completely different in substance and essence. A glorified version of you is not even imaginable in this life. And that is what will be the reality for us there. There will be, friends, no need for marriage in the afterlife. For we will be in the most perfect of relationships with our Heavenly Father and with one another. This is good news to all of us. Heaven will have one singular relationship of importance, God and his people. Praise God who will one day restore us and make us new. We should thus look forward to the reality of this to come. And it's a promise. Here's the second point, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he corrects them on the afterlife issue. He also subtly corrects them on the angels and demons issue. But here's his correction of the resurrection. This is where we get sort of the meat and potatoes of today's text. After correcting their first theological error, Jesus points to their second. You're going to want to go to verses 26 and 27 for this. Note that he has completely ignored the initial question, almost completely disregarded it, which should tell you what Jesus thought of the question. Moreover, that question was uh, what that question was trying to press him towards. The second correction is found in verses 26 to 27 on the matter of the resurrection itself. It stands at the crux of their question to Jesus. They hope to amplify their teaching of resurrection and the non-existence of it regarding this doctrine. So here's a rare occurrence where the Pharisees are actually on the same side as Jesus. They are indirectly, in a way, applauded by Jesus as he affirms their stance on the issue of resurrection. Pharisees did believe in a resurrection. Jesus again asks this rhetorical question of these men. And again, it would have been offensive. He asks them, have you not read? Have you not read? But he specifies it to what? Have you not read the book of Moses? Now, why would this be offensive? Of course, friends, in your Bible, there is no book of Moses, right? Uh, this is a Jewish way of speaking of the first five books of your Bible, from Genesis to Deuteronomy, the Torah, the books of Moses. These were the very books that these men adhered to, the very book they just quoted in asking Jesus' question. In fact, the book of Moses was the only book that these men would have read. It's the only book that they would have considered the word of God, and Jesus is asking them, Friends, have you not read the book of Moses? He is scoffing at, he's pointing at their supposed strength, and he's saying, this is your weakness. And it's not to humiliate them. It's to humble them. There's a subtle difference there. Sometimes, we, you know, we cover up our rebuke as saying, oh, I'm just trying to humble him. But you're really trying to humiliate them. Jesus is not, his agenda is not to humiliate these men. He's trying to correct them, to humble them so that they would come to the truth. To ask them if they had not read these books would have been a marvel in the eyes of the Jewish audience there. No one of Jewish descent would ask these men such a question. The question itself does not intend to ask them if they had read these books. Jesus knows they read them. They obviously did. The question that Jesus is asking is, did you really understand them? The question can be worded in this way. If you read these books, how come you know so little about them? 
when Liz and I got married, we had to uh, build a bunch of furniture in our home. Um, like most people, we just got it from Ikea. Ikea is like Lego for adults. Um, it just comes with a manual and you just got to build this huge thing, right? Um, and I admittedly am impatient with these things at times. I'm also a bit of a know-it-all. So I like to, you know, just look at the manual if needed. That's sort of my mantra in life. Uh, do it, and uh, if you run into a problem, uh, go to the manual if needed. Now, others in this room are probably going, well, that's stupid. Like, you just use the manual and you get it done in one shot, right? Well, good for you. Well, we have a running joke between us, right, between Liz and I. Uh, when someone makes a mistake in this process, we look at the other and we kind of scoff at them and we say, ew, did you even read the manual? That's sort of like, you know, some form of that comes out uh, in various things in life, various things we do in life, right? Uh, lately, it's been computer games and other times, maybe other things, right? Uh, we also like Smash on Nintendo Switch, and sometimes I beat her, sometimes she beats me, and then we just look at each other, ew, do you even know how to play this game? Um, that's kind of how it goes. I imagine this is sort of the mentality that's being presented to these people. Jesus is asking them, do you even know what is written for you? You've read, but have you understood? The other person always knows what it means when they ask this question this way. And sometimes I want to say I did read the manual, which I was just embarrassed to say that I did, which makes it worse. But anyways, that's what happened. Jesus looked at these men, and his question is not a question. What is it, friends? It's a rebuke. The reason why they not know of the resurrection is because they have not read properly or totally. What is Christ's evidence? Well, he points to Exodus chapter 3. These men would have certainly been familiar with this. What's in Exodus 3? Well, it's the episode of the burning bush. The bush, understanding that it was God speaking, tells Moses that he is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The bush in that episode, if you remember, says, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. Now, the first thing to note is the grammar. In Hebrew, it's a lot more obvious. In English, it's a little subtle, but it's there. God uses in Hebrew the present tense. He uses the present tense when he says he is the God. I am, ego eimi, the God of Abraham. They are present realities. Although at that time when the bush is speaking, what is the reality of these men? They're physically deceased. They're dead. Yet God speaks of them as if they were present. So the grammatical element is there, but that's just a subtle thing. The second thing to note is this, which is hard for modern readers to catch, because a lot of us are not Jewish in descent, which is the Jewish understanding of God's continual faithfulness and promise-keeping of the covenant that he made with those men. Remember the Abrahamic covenant, and then continually expressed into Isaac, and then onto Jacob, and then so on and so forth. These men are, just not, are not simply just patriarchs, they're not just ancestors of the Jewish people. You know, when we look at, like, our ancestors in Asia, and we're like, you know, we respect them, pay our dues, etc., right? But these men are not just ancestors to the Jewish people. They're not just descendants of Abraham. What really bonds these people to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the covenant. God's promise of a nation, a people, and a land nation, people, and land, right? So critical to the Jewish people. So they look at these patriarchs as symbols of that promise. Jesus' argument is this. 
that these men are very much alive in the sense that God continues to keep that covenant with you, that he made with them. If they were dead, deceased, and non-existent, and there was no afterlife, and they don't matter anymore, then God would have never established a covenant with men. He would have never kept or made a promise and kept it with men who just simply ceased to exist. He would have just had promise after promise with generation after generation. If there's no resurrection, if there's no afterlife, if there's no life with God after, then why would God continue to even care about such a covenant that they're not even good at keeping? God, hence, is not the God of the dead, Jesus says, but the God of the living. Living not in the sense of physical living, living in the sense of lineage, symbolism, and covenant. Jesus makes that plain and clear. And so he says, you are mistaken. Here's the conclusion for today. And I want to conclude by first reiterating what Jesus taught and what we're supposed to get out of the text. That the afterlife is far different and greater than this life. That's the hope of the Christian faith. And the second point is this, that the resurrection of bodies is a reality that will come. That's another glorious hope in the Christian faith. Those are two things that I think all Christians need to be reminded of so that we live in the hope that is Jesus. Love that song that we sing, what is our hope in life and death? Jesus. But why is Jesus our hope in relation to this particular teaching? Because Jesus first is the way, the truth, and life. He is the way to this afterlife. He is the only means to this afterlife. It is only through faith in him as the Son of God, who came and died for us on a cross, that one could be granted into heaven's glory and into eternal life with him forever. Jesus died, friends, so that those who believe in him could live. His death was atonement for your sin. It was a price paid for, and it paid for all of your sins. So may you put your faith and trust in him always. And if you're sitting here today going, I'm not sure of this. I'm not certain that this son of God truly came, truly died, and truly rose. I don't know if I could put my faith and trust in him. Friends, I invite you to contemplate, to consider the claims of the Christian faith. There is no complexity to it. Don't sit here going, oh, all this mumbo-jumbo this guy's saying, I don't understand. The one thing you do need to understand is Jesus came and died for you, and he rose from the grave. And if you believe in this truth, if you trust in him, you will experience the afterlife with him in your resurrected form. You will, his death will be your death in the sense of the death to your old, and his resurrection will be your resurrection in the sense that it will be the resurrection of your new. So I invite you to consider those things if you have not placed your faith in him yet. But what's the most beautiful thing about Jesus Beyond the death is this. Secondly, is that his resurrection also occurred. And he didn't just die. The story does not end there. He rose from the grave three days after. He conquered sin and death once for all. He showed that he is God by doing that which only he could do and he promised he would do. He resurrected three days after his death. And so he is not just going to tell these Sadducees, hey friends, the resurrection is real. Let me show you the resurrection. I myself will resurrect. And he does so. I would have loved to see the Sadducees' faces that day when that tomb was left empty on that Easter morning. Trust in him and you not only have promise of sin conquered, but death as well. What stands out to me in this text is this, 
that Jesus quotes God from Exodus chapter 3. Now, why does this stand out to me? This is where I conclude. There are numerous other texts where God declares himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or where someone refers to him as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's numerous texts all throughout the Old Testament. So why Exodus 3? Why this text? I pondered this this week, and here's what I came to. I share it with you as my final note. Moses, in this episode in Exodus 3, is being commissioned and sent by God, called by God for a special purpose, to return to Egypt, to his people, in a land where they are uh, slaves and in bondage. His commission is to deliver them, to free them from slavery, to bring them out and establish a new nation in this promised land. And he does so, for he is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. He remembers his promises, and he keeps them. He fulfills them perfectly. He delivers his people from bondage and slavery. And where does he bring them? He brings them home. He brings them home. The journey is rough, but he brings them home. The journey is, in fact, impossible. So he splits a sea through a miraculous work of his hand so that you would know that no matter what comes your way, even the seas will split so that you would be home with him. Friends, is your life hard as a Christian? The righteous hand of God can split seas, symbolically, so that you could come home. And you know what the greatest sea split ever was? It's not the Red Sea. It's that cross of Jesus the great miracle of the Son, taking on flesh to die for you, that if you put your faith in him, you could have eternal life and come home to him. Praise be to God and all glory unto him. For he sent his Son, just as he sent Moses, to deliver us from bondage and slavery, from our sin and flesh, that we could be with him forever. Let's close our eyes. Let's reflect on what God has taught us today.